0: Jerry Zachs sat down with moderator Stephen Kaplan for a one-on-one interview in July of 1986. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theater Wing because this program was not originally intended for broadcast it is not of the highest technical quality as a result portions of the conversation may have been edited good afternoon
1: (laughs) and uh, welcome to the third in our series of one-on-one conversations with This afternoon we're very pleased to have as our guest Jerry Zaks and as our moderator Melvin Bernhardt. Okay, Melvin, thank you. Hi, Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about the theater and then we're going to uh, uh, take questions from all of you. Um, When I first met you, you were an actor. Uh, Did you always intend to become a director?
2: No. No, I didn't. I, um, <clears throat> I had no interest in it whatsoever. I had fallen in love, uh, fallen in love with the theater as, 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 an, as an actor, as a performer, and was doing that very happily, very happily, and just enough to make me think I could continue to do it happily uh, when I had the opportunity to direct something from out of the blue and uh, did it and found it s- and slowly began to gravitate toward directing, uh, very slowly. For the longest time I... Referred to it as uh, something I just sort of did in addition to acting, but acting is, was what I did. And over about three or four years, I s- found myself making a sort of an unconscious transition to directing.
1: What do you it cost that?
2: I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it an awful lot, and and uh, and I found that I was being offered opportunities. I think I think the most important factor was that I, I started receiving offers to direct in a way that didn 't it, um, it was unlike offers to act. I mean, I, I found that I still had to go out and earn the right to act through auditions, and the the opportunities to direct were more forthcoming after the first few things and The idea of not having to go through the barbaric ritual of auditioning was tremendously appealing it was uh, uh, It was a, a part of working in the theater that I found I really enjoyed not having to contend with anymore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and then began to discover that the joy I took in creating my own little make-believe worlds in the preparation of a play, for preparation for rehearsals, was really very, very satisfying. And I just, all of a sudden, I, 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 the room to act wasn't there anymore. You know, the, the, the time to do it, and, uh, and it sort of happened like that. Would you ever
1: consider acting again? I mean, if somebody said, well, now, hey, you're not going to do your next show till next winter. a
2: terrifying prospect. The idea of the, sh- the work that it would take to get back into shape to uh-huh. get on stage, which I always tend to think of as sort of an athletic challenge, Is would be uh, daunting, you know, to say the least. Um, occasionally i'll read something or or consider something and think wouldn't it be fun to do it and 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 then the reality of the time it would take to prepare it the fact that i would be fulfilling the actor's job which is does not involve as much control as i've gotten spoiled to having as director and i honestly don't know how i would deal with that and and it begins to get very complicated and then of course the commitment of being at the theater eight times a week which it just used to take for granted and used to th- thrive on. In a sense, the prospect of that becomes uh, more of a, 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 a burden than something I might enjoy, you know, mm-hmm. or something that would split my focus. I'm trying to raise a family, and it would be uh, it would be a lot harder having to be at the theater eight times a week. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, how did you How did you go about learning the director's craft? I mean, you had been on in rehearsal halls all your
2: life. Yeah. Right? I think a trial and error over a period of time, and really, I I wasn't thinking of it so much in terms of learning the craft as just trying to make a specific moment in a specific play that I was working on work at that time, and it just, as I look back, I think it was a a function of doing, uh, doing, uh, 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 directing as much as I possibly could direct once I started, and I don't, I don't know that I've ever really fully learned from the mistakes I've made on um, previous productions. I'd like to think that I have, but it astonishes me how often I'm surprised uh, by something, you know, once previews begin, that I hadn't anticipated or or how long I can hold on to a bad piece of direction before I realize that I'm telling a story other than the authors or anyone, you know. It just astonishes me how even now after... Having directed for about, I guess since about 1979, I think is when I began, that it will sometimes take me as long as it does to realize that I've made a mistake, or it's, uh, it's. so. I think it's an ongoing process, and I think I was fortunate because I had the opportunity to direct in a rather, in the beginning, in a in a in a, in a protected environment. I, I started working uh, as a director at the Ensemble Studio Theater, very informally. A, a friend of mine who was a member uh, had read a play called The Soft Touch by Neil Cuthbert, a farce, Mm -hmm. uh, to which he was drawn to play uh, the lead role. And he he said, why don't you read this? I want to play, I think the character's name is Binky, why don't you direct it? And I don't even recall why he suggested I direct it, except that he probably knew I had a big mouth and loved being in control of as much as possible, and tended to give actors in companies that I was acting in notes. You know? So... You did did that. Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) terrible but well I did you know particularly if I've been in a long run and it's great because it it helps me understand the behavior of actors that I direct now who are in long runs you know you're in a long run for a while you've been there since the beginning and now new people come in and you have this proprietary sense of knowing how it's got to work and the stage managers aren't doing their job and no one's telling the new people and all of a sudden you know I would find myself bursting to share what I perceive to be how it should go with the new people, and it's terrible, terrible. But uh, do people do this in your shows? I don't think so. I, and no, I, no, they don't. I hope not, uh, or I certainly <laughs> hope I don't find out about it. No, God,
1: no, no. Do you uh, do you stop in on your shows uh, often?
2: I I do in direct proportion to how uh, 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 in inverse proportion to how long they've been running. I think it's harder for me to get to the show after it's been running for a year. I try to. Uh, it's usually because I'm. Focused on something that's more present, uh, but it's it, the idea of a show of mine getting out of tune uh, horrifies me. So I try to um, I try to come back and make sure that the basic pulse of what we choreographed or developed in rehearsal is is there, and that you know improvements or liberties haven't been taken, you know haven't, improvements haven't been implemented or liberties liberties taken with a pace or the music of the piece, or you know people have. People very often will tend to come into a show after a while and uh, display their characterizations, you know, at the mm-hmm. expense of the situation of the play. And I think I feel important that it's important to monitor that. And I think I can do it in a way that a stage manager, even a very very good stage manager, won't quite be able to address. So I try to come back. You know.
1: But is that like every couple of months or?
2: With <clears throat> with uh, again, it depends. With Guys and Dolls, I was trying to do it once a month after the first six months, at least. And then once I got into active work on Laughter on the 23rd Floor, there was a stretch of two or three months where I didn't see it at all. Yeah. I would have conversations quite regularly with the production stage manager, keeping me posted of uh, crises or decisions or questions that the actors might have about a moment. But
1: um, And you've always had people coming and going yes, in the cast.
2: Yes, yes. We try, to, we try to structure it so that the people who were there originally kept, ca- so we try to structure it so it's reasonably easy for people to come and go without uh, wreaking too much havoc with, with the show. You know, uh, we're trying to give leaves of absence so mm-hmm. that people can come back. Um, but what I've done with Guys and Dolls, for example, is once laughter on the twenty third floor opened, I was back to Guys and Dolls the following week for a rehearsal that Thursday mm-hmm. because it had just gotten it had just gotten way out of tune. You know, it, it, so I'm seeing a lot of stuff that I was making me nuts. I attended Faith Prince's last performance and sat for it in a good seat. And it was, it was you know, there were moments that were truly horrifying because they had changed. You know, I was, I, I was seeing uh, m- mugging and, and, and bad storytelling and, and liberties being taken that just, I, I think are natural, are inevitable. You're you not know. talking about Faith, of course. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I couldn't. I almost gave her a note, but I, no. I, uh, but, but, uh, I heard closing I'm 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 a Something I had to, but um, uh, no, no. It, 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 uh, it's, it's, I think it's a natural a consequence of a long run. I think it's inevitable, and I think you do what you can to delay the aging process. You know, to delay people getting bored, to delay people thinking that it would be better if I did this—not even consciously—but things change over time, and it's. Um, uh, uh, I try to delay that as long as possible.
1: And mostly they think it's new discoveries and deepening and
2: all of that stuff. Oh, sure. And it feels good. You know, if this was good the, in the first time, now all of a sudden it becomes, you know, or it, it just it takes a little more time. It feels a little, you know, and, and no one is, is telling the performer that the audience is not quite as interested in uh-huh. that as they are, you know. And it's, it's, I, think it's, I think it's something that good actors, at least good actors in my experience, have been eager to hear. Little, you know, well, eager's not the right word, are grateful to hear, <laughs> uh, as long as as you know, as long as they're not made to feel too silly for having it pointed out to them. I
1: think. Yeah. Now, you said in an interview in yeah. New York Magazine that the key to comedy, uh, let's see, comedy only works if the audience cares about the characters, if they believe that the characters' needs are real. And you tell that story, maybe you should tell that story about working with Zero?
2: Oh, I, which one? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, working with zero, working with zero uh, um, w- was a great acting lesson. I mean, it was it, for, for, it was a great act. I, I did uh, Fiddler on the Roof with him. I'm trying I'm literally there. are About three or four that I can remember vividly of his giving me acting lessons on stage. You know, uh, um, uh, it was, a, it increasing, was a, the in, in, increasing the need. Increasing the need. There was a moment in Fiddler on the Roof where, and I hope this is the one where um, Muttle the tailor uh, um, finally tells Rev Tevye that the suitor he has in mind for Tevye's eldest daughter is me, myself. Um, at, at which point, Tevye does, has some sort of a tirade about Muddle and the spineless worm that he is. And he just puts him down, puts him down, puts him down. And finally, Muddle cracks. And his line is, that's true, Reb Tevye, but even a poor tailor is entitled to some happiness. And the worm has turned, and there's a, you know, it's, it's the beginning of Muddle's becoming a grown-up. Well, I would, he would give me the cue every night, and under his breath, unbeknownst to anyone in the audience, he would say, "No, give it to me,
0: give it to, to me.
2: me." I couldn't believe it. I thought, I thought "He's giving me notes on stage." I mean, before body uh, mics—that's <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. No, give it to me. And, and I thought, again, I thought I was at ten on the scale of one to ten. I thought my line reading and the degree of rage that I was expressing was at ten, but I was being careful. Uh, I didn't know I was being careful. And finally, one night, I'd I'd had it up to here with this man telling me what to do, giving me cues under his breath. And I can remember him giving me the cue. And I went crazy in a controlled way. I mean, I didn't start throwing the furniture or beating on his head. You know, I, with the line, said, that's true. And I remember drawing myself up into his big face. And I remember seeing the spittle flying into his face, you know. Even a tailor is entitled to some happiness. And I went much further than I had ever gone. And there's the moment, at, and there was a huge laugh. The audience roared at, at the degree to which I had become enraged. And in the, the huge laugh, all he said under his breath was, that's it, <laughs> that's it. And he would do this kind of thing over and over again. And once you got past the defensive reflex, it was, it was a, you know, he knew. He knew. You know, and It was wonderful to, to work with him, for it.
1: Well, you said comedy, comedy only works if the audience cares about the characters if they believe that the characters' needs are real. He made me make that moment life and death.
2: Now, is that generally the approach? It's, it's, it generally is for me in, in that the pieces, the, the plays that I'm drawn to require that, you know? It, it, a, a character desperately needing to get through to another character, desperately needing to affect another character. Mm. It can be... I err on the side of it being fast and loud because that's usually the, the first way to try to get the attention off yourself onto someone else, whether, whether you're trying to seduce them or abuse them or it... it, it and, and again, the plays that I'm drawn to usually have, are a succession of those kinds of moments. Uh, therefore I love working with actors who have the ability to get the attention off themselves you know, whose agenda really isn't to display themselves but to make the other guy so important that by doing, because I believe it's like physics, if you can do that, if you can succeed in doing that, you become that much more interesting to the audience, or if you can create that illusion anyway, you know. Um, and I just, I just think it's been true of m- most of the plays I've done at any given moment. It's about a character needing to get through to someone very bad, as though, as, as though their lives depended on it, you know. Uh, what
1: about laughter on the 23rd floor, well, let's where see. people let's don't see. really seem to have needs in the usual way, because there's it, no plot right, in the usual right, way? Right,
2: right. The, the need is to be the funniest guy in the room. The need is to, the need is to survive in that room. Now, you know, you, this may not be enough, this may not, but it, 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 it translated in, in the course of rehearsal. I wanted to believe that when some First of all, I wanted to believe that these people coming to this room were not unlike the guys coming to work in the front page in that they, for all their fetching, for all their moaning about you know, what's going on in their lives here, they love to come to this room more than anything. They love to come to this room. Uh, why? Because they were comfortable top, in, in the relationships they had with each other and in the process that they were going through, which was basically trying to come up with material for a live show the next week. And there was, you know, that was the deadline. So you had a little bit of room to play on Monday because you had just had a successful show Saturday. But pretty soon you had to start coming up with the material. And in that room, one of the main ways that they came up with the material was indulging in kind of a free-form hostility to each other that assumed they were comfortable, with it, comfortable enough with each other to not edit themselves with each other. And, and that it was really important to each of them to get a rise one way or another, from, from, from the other. So, <clears throat> so it takes different forms. But I know that when Randy Graff, when the uh, Carol, the character in Left on the 23rd Floor, bursts into the room and says, have you guys heard the news? You know, uh, General, uh, Joe McCarthy called General Marshall a communist. He calls that, I wanna, how far can we, far can we push that before she becomes shrill and, and distorts? I wanna believe that at that moment, the most important thing in the world to her is coming in, getting some sort of sympathetic response to that from these other guys in that moment. Mm-hmm. And, if that's, and, if, and if I don't believe that, then she hasn't prepared strongly enough for that entrance or she isn't committing fully enough to getting their attention. You know, it's a room where people got each other's attention and you kept it for as long as you could mm-hmm. until someone else knocked you off, <laughs> you know, took it from you. And so it was not a polite room. It was not a polite room. The stakes were very high in coming up with a good show. As Max Liebman said, from a polite story conference comes a polite show. And And that and Neil's memory of what the room was like sort of dictated that it at least feel like it was very important for everyone to be there and very important for each person to be as funny as possible and to get the others to laugh. If you could get your colleagues laughing then you were scoring, you know, and then you were on a roll, and hopefully, out of that would come something. Hopefully, out of that, you would eventually sit down and get to work and write the sketch, you know, if you got, if you got to that point. Of course, in the play, they don't get to writing the sketch, till the, you know, till, we don't see that until the second act, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Um,
1: you also said that uh, you believed in banning the playwright for the first week or 10 days so everyone will feel safe. And we were just yes. talking
2: here, and you said this was not the case this time. No, no. And it's great. I was, yes. No, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't. And you know, I, and it was good. This was, just, it was a wonderful experience working. Uh, and I, I was just talking to Mel about this a little bit. Um, I didn't know what to expect. It was obviously a loaded situation. I had never worked with either Neil or Manny Eisenberg. And, um, and uh, you just don't know what to expect. Are, you, are we going to be able to coexist and work happily together? I, I didn't know. and. And so the inclination at the beginning is sort of to cling to those things that have made you comfortable in the past. And one of the things that has always made me comfortable in the past is with a new play, reading around the table with a company for the first two or three days, answering questions, breaking it down, who you know who is after whom and why and how badly. you know let, And start acting it around the table a little bit. And for the people then, you know, the actors to ask questions of the playwright. And then at a certain point to have the playwright, playwright leave and then have me bond with the company and vice versa. Um, I, think in, I think that m- I have done that as much... I have done that because it, it's made me feel safest and most secure in the past. You know, I'm, the last thing I want to do is, is say something stupid in front of the playwright. You know, I think it's human nature. I, I, and I want to protect the actors from doing the same thing. And at the very least, the actors are... Particularly with Neil Simon, who most of the actors in the company, you know... Uh, uh, Worship may not be too strong a word, but have great respect for certainly. There's that feeling of, oh, we don't want to make a mistake because Neil is in the room. And I expressed that to Neil, and he listened, and he, he agreed to that, but then he began thinking about what he needed to make the play better. And he maintained that he needed to listen to the work, the lines, so that he could hear what made sense, what wasn't working, to hear it so that it might trigger something better in his mind, and that the last thing he was doing was watching the director work or the actors work. Um, And so, I said, let's try it. I mean, it would be crazy not to try it, just it would not make sense to not try it. And when I found that, after the first two or three days, and this is from the time I started staging the play, because you like to feel free to make mistakes and make stupid suggestions and go, oh yeah, what was I thinking? You know, and forgive me for even suggesting that. And thank you for trying it so boldly, actor, you know. But it's, it's much easier to do that when no one's looking. Uh, what I found was that after two or three days with Neil in the room, I, I was doing my work in, in pretty much the same way that I would have had he not been there. This was, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to go, yay, good for you, Jared. This is a step towards mental health, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's it, well, you know, you just, because I, the work continued and he, turned out to be an ally, not a judge. And he indeed he was doing his work. And I would, you know, as I was working on something, and, I, and happily I was able to say, I don't know, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what happens here. But let, me, let me think about it because, and, you know, I could then go home with what we had done and it be my homework so that I could come back. And the process began. And Neil, for his part, would sit and listen. And occasionally he would disappear. And he would come back 45 minutes later, like an hour later, and say, so read this. And it would be, a new take on a scene that we had just been staging. And we did this in a very orderly way. You know, I would read it first. If I thought it it was good or, you know, we'd have copies made and the actors would read it right away. And it was great to hear, you know, pockets of laughter erupting around the room as the cast read the new the change. <coughs> if I had questions, I'd say, let's wait, let's wait. And then he and I would talk about it uh, and discuss whether we were coming up with something better or something different or... Something that wanted to wait until we had an audience, blah, blah, blah. But, um, so, you know, what I said in New York, you know, I've I've amended it. This was really, the, I think, the first time that I've worked with the playwright in the room as regularly as Neil was. The way it turned out, he stayed there, he stayed for the first two weeks of rehearsal, um, by which point I had a rough draft blocking of the whole play. an acceptable first draft, and it made sense. And some of it was pretty good, but, you know, some of it was sloppy and really, you know, didn't really pay attention to who was telling the story at what moment, you know. But then he left for a week, in the middle of the third week of rehearsal, which turned out to be perfect, because, you know, everyone in the company, the company sort of breathed a sigh of relief, uh, only because we had, a, we had a structure that Neil was happy with, that I was happy with, and now we could begin to explore it. So we spent the third week really uh, taking it apart, Reinvestigating the staging, re-investigating the text, asking questions about when a character perhaps was saying the same thing twice, making notes, mm-hmm. which I would compare with Neil over the phone, but which I would delay doing anything about until he could hear it. You know, I found that he was much better hearing it than discussing it sort of theoretically. Uh, uh, and uh, that scheme worked out just fine. We were together for the fourth week of rehearsal, which was the final week before we left for... Uh, North Carolina where we tried to play out and it was a change for me and I was, it, was, it turned out very happily.
1: Great, great. Well, you've been doing um, uh,
2: primarily revivals, right? You know, I've done a bunch. I've done... Uh, a uh, lot. You know, well, let me see. I've done Six Ga- Degrees
1: was new play. And,
2: and Lend me a was new play. And Lend Me a Tenor was a new play. And Lend Me a And Anything Goes and Guys and Dolls were revivals. I, I like to think that there's, it's split pretty evenly but I really haven't... I, you, know, you know what it is, I think. Um... I'm. I don't have a vast store of theater knowledge. I, I, I. What do I mean? I was not familiar with Guys and Dolls when it was presented to me as a possibility. I had heard of it. I had never seen it on stage, and I think I had seen the movie, which was pretty unacceptable. It, it was. I mean, you know, it was slow, and very slow. And, and, and were li- lines were changed. You know, I only found out in retrospect that lines were being changed to improve them. And, you know, invariably they change a punch line so it had three more syllables than it really wanted or, you know, a few prepositions, too many, and it, just, it was just, the effect was numbing. So I didn't really have great affection or knowledge for the show or knowledge of it so that when I really seriously sat down and listened to it and read it, it was, you know, I perceived it, I sort of pretended it was brand new and that, mm-hmm. you know, Frank Lesser and, and Abe Burroughs had just said, here's the first draft, what do you think? You know, which is a bit what? Uh, what's the word? Uh, it's a little game I play, but it's, it's one I can play easily because I'm not burdened by uh, the, the knowledge of, of the show. You know. So
1: had you been familiar with Damon Runyon and
2: read any no, of? Oh, only yes, in, Did college, you, uh, in college. In college, yes. you had read some, and, and so you had some
1: vague notion I of what he was and
2: his style and, the, and how economical and imaginative his his language was. But all I knew about Guys and Dolls was that it seemed to be everyone's either favorite show or the greatest show ever written. You know. It's, and, 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 you know, which, which really kept me from seriously considering it several years ago, because the last thing I wanted to do was deal with that. You know, everyone's, you know... with oh, You know, I remember getting pats on, on the back, sort of, good luck. Which basically translated <laughs> into, don't mess it up, <laughs> please. Don't, you know, at least certainly felt like that to me, you know. Um, but I loved it when I read it, and, and uh, same thing happened with anything goes. I don't... I, you know, I know of Cole Porter. I can't recite... You know, I'm not just not a huge fan and, 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 a, and a student of his, of his music or his shows. And so listening to uh, a tape of selected numbers from uh, Anything Goes or from other Cole Porter shows was sort of a startling experience. You know, oh my God, that's where that's from. Oh my God. You know, so then the idea of working on it never seemed like we were trying to, you know, breathe life into something that had had life once and now was just sort of waiting to be resuscitated, which... The term revival sort of suggests some, something unconscious, you know, that needs to be... I sort of sort of saw it as a, 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 a you know, well, let's, let's, you know, if this had never been done before, how could we do it? But at the same time, how could we learn from the original success of Guys and Dolls, for example? You know, how could, how could we learn from that and, and make sure we didn't, we didn't fly in the face, you know, of something basic about the show that you, you can't change or you, you mustn't tamper mm-hmm. with because of some stamp that we... Wanted to put on it, you know. Uh, um, tried to answer those questions first. You know, with Guys and Dolls, it was, it was uh, uh, as much as anything uh, um, about choosing how to present it. You know, it had clearly—that is to say—physically presented. Should we do it in the way that it was written to be presented? That is to say, in an alternating a scheme of alternating in one full stage scenes, in one bring a drop in, change the scenery, which you had to do in, you know... That's pre- how they did Exactly. <clears throat> once you'd finished the in-one scene, fly the drop, and now let's use the full stage, bring the drop in, and, and so on and so forth. Um, could we do it in some sort of unisect, uh, in, in some sort of scheme that would be different, that didn't... And we th- I thought about that an awful lot. You know, I, I consulted with Cy Fuhr, who had produced the original, and who had directed uh, the show several times, and he had even tried to do that once. And, 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 and clearly discussed it a lot with Tony Walton. And I came to the conclusion that it was, ri- because of the way it was written and the fact that we weren't going to tamper with the way it was written, that somehow, to, to be true to the pulse of the show, you know, the rhythm of the way the scenes were presented, one and then another, we needed to come up with some version of that in one full stage, in one full stage. And, I don't know, once I sort of decided that, it was, ah, oh, good. Now, all we have to deal with is what it looks like, you know? But I, I, it was very comforting to realize that I wanted to do it that way. Almost had to do it that way, you know?
1: Anyway. Now, you've got another musical revival coming up. Yes, yes.
2: Uh, wh- wh- what about revivals in general? What does this say about our theater today? It's, 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 it's what it says. I, I don't know what it says about our theater today. It says that I'm not reading new musicals that excite me as much as uh, the old ones that I read, you know? I, 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 and I don't know why. I I don't know why. I think I think it's not quite fair. I think developing a musical is something that a direct is a long-term commitment that a director has to be prepared to make. You know, to and and I I imagine that a director has a you know either has a vision or reads a first draft that isn't ready but sees where it is going to go and, and you know full speed ahead and damn the torpedoes as to how long it's going to take to get there. I don't I don't think I think that way. I think I need to have a more completed. Idea of what it is to really get excited about the prospect of Mm
0: -hmm. putting
2: it into rehearsal, you know, collaborating with the designer about it. I just think it's, you know, it's part of my. So uh, the the new musicals that I've been reading haven't excited me enough to want to commit to what is a long process of development. uh, Enough, I just haven't, just haven't been excited uh, 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 enough. Certainly not as excited as I get when I sit down with a tape of. Funny thing happened on the way to the forum, which I'm going to do a year from January, if everything goes smoothly. You know, as, as, as sitting down with that tape and that book and, and just pretending I'm the audience to this new version of it, you know? And, you know, when I find myself laughing uncontrollably, and I think, my God, you know, why Why? in the music is, you know, so startling. And you had never seen it? I had seen it, yes. A funny thing? Yes. Funny thing I saw uh, at the Phil Silver's revival, you know? And what I remember vividly is him sitting downstage left with a most beautiful woman sitting on his lap, and him just doing what Davy Burns used to do when he got excited, just sort of going and laughing for you know what felt like two minutes because he would keep doing it, and there was just this. I, I remember it being very funny, and mm. and and uh, <laughs> but you know but but again, it's not a it's, it's 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 not a vivid memory of the story and the relationships. It's just a sense of. A general sense of light and music and lots of laughter in the theater, and which was confirmed when I sat down and actually read it. You know? I even saw, I once saw a, um, a, a production of it, or most of a production of it, I think, in a small theater in New Jersey that was very, it was done on a shoestring, but had the audience and myself included in stitches. This was, you know, so I'm, I'm a little more familiar with that than I am
1: yeah. Guys
2: and Dolls when I decided to do that.
1: Do you think there are writers, creators for new musicals out there?
2: I think so. I, 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 I think. Um, again, I haven't, I haven't become acquainted. I haven't spent a lot of time seeking out their company. I become sort of aware of uh, of them. I, I remember seeing once, once on this island, um, mm-hmm. uh, Flaherty and and um, Aaron. Aaron, thinking this, this is, you know this is exciting. I, I happen to think that. Uh, uh, Alan Alan Menken is capable of writing, you know, a Broadway score. You know, he's absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, he's been, but he's very happily working uh, in films. I know he wants to do a Broadway show. I know that we've spoken about it. I think he's and and I, I don't know, you know, I don't know the other young people who've got the potential to do it. I just wish there was a, a surefire way of encouraging them. You no, know, it doesn't do much to tell them that I'm not interested. You know, or that you know, the, the idea that. It, I just I, I don't know where they are, and I'm afraid that the, the ones with the talent are too easily seduced away to um, to film and television. And that's true. Of playwrights too. Huh? Oh sure, and directors as well. I mean, yes, it's 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 you know it's happening. I, if you if you take a look at the credits to most uh, most of the I think a lot of the sitcoms that are running currently, uh, a lot of them have directed by uh, you know someone that I know to be a trained theater director and. Clearly, they're happily involved in a job that is regular and paying them a lot of money, and they're probably getting a chance to, you know, to do their work. And and, and you know, I mean, I've watched the taping of, of television sitcoms, and it appears to me that, you know, once you got the hang of it, it would be a lot of fun. You know, I, w- what it is beyond that, and it certainly would p- pay the bills. And so I, I, I don't think that's I, I don't think that's anything to become concerned about. I hope. To, those talented people come back to the theater and work in the theater when they feel they can afford to, or wh- whatever you know, whatever draws them back. Reading a script that they feel they have to do. Um, uh, it, it's. I just wish I knew the answer as, as to what it would take to encourage people to write for the, for the musical stage. I, I, I don't. I don't. Ha- I just don't know what it well, is. Well, there
1: is some. Um, uh, I a unit now that's at Playwrights Horizon and Manhattan Theater Club, and is there one other theater involved? Lincoln Center,
2: is that right? Are they beginning to, to? And they're jointly doing a kind of uh, workshop thing. I think that's all you can do. It's, it, I know ASCAP or, or BMI have had regular yeah. workshops, and yeah. I mean any anything that can that can create a forum for people to express their you know to, to try it, to, to, you know to come up with material that can be read and and, and evaluated and criticized and. and uh, I don't know. I, I just—it's it, the costs of doing a show are so astronomical that I think yeah. it's, it's not geared to uh, to encouraging new young talent. And so That's we lose them. They yeah. go, they go
1: out and—that's uh, what I'm afraid of. Yeah. Are you interested in film television?
2: <coughs> not 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 <laughs> not really. I, I and I say that only because I've been happily so busy and involved in, in, in projects for the theater that. You know, it's come up occasionally, uh, the possibility to come and direct this TV show or, and, and, and come and direct or, or come and take a look at this feature and it's a combination of things. I, I really don't like leaving home at all, uh, at least not now, uh, at all. And uh, it's rarely that you can do a TV show or a film without leaving New York. Uh, and I'm, I, you know, not being familiar with the technology of the camera, how to use the camera, How to use the different choice of lenses, as opposed to the proscenium opening, where you have one lens, you know, one lens, and you have to make create the varieties within that. It's just something I've never, I've never done, and you know, I, I, I'm not eager to throw myself into that kind of a situation unless I were to read a story or have an idea for a story, or that I just felt I had to do, you know, so so urgently. That it would overcome those concerns, you know, I'd somehow deal with those, you know, mm-hmm. give myself the time to consider the possibilities that an experienced director would be able to consider with less time, you know. Uh, but I don't. I, it's not something that I'm really uh, uh, focused on, you know. I'm not. It's not. It's not a goal right now.
1: You started directing in '79, yeah, um, and. Now, granted, your career has changed in the course of all this, but how has the theater changed in this period of time? I,
2: it's, I, you know, I was afraid you'd ask me. <laughs> I have so little... You per- knew I was. No, no. I have, I'm ashamed to admit, sort of, that I have so little perspective. You know, I have so selfishly been involved in staying busy. You know, mm-hmm. being in the theater from, from undergraduate days, it's translated into working on something. That's what being in the theater is. It's working on a project, having something to work on or planning to work on something as much as you could control that. And you certainly can control it more as a director than you can an actor, I think. I think. And that was probably one of the reasons why I was drawn to it. Um, pursuing that, I, I haven't taken the time to sit back and really reflect on um, the larger question. You know, um, I think, I would like to believe that the costs... Notwithstanding that the theater is just as healthy now as it was 20 years ago, because what what you can get in in live theater when it's right is so unique that I like to think that the need for that is never going to go away. You know, I think that there will always be someone who wants to see it, and there will be always be someone who desperately wants to put it on. You know, who wants to make it happen.
1: But isn't that group shrinking? <laughs>
2: I, 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 I. I mean, don't there know. was so much know.
1: more going on. I mean, well, it, yes, you, you, you remember the when number, Yes. In the September, number. you couldn't. There was the booking jam yeah. on Broadway, yeah. and yeah. Off Broadway was even worse. Yeah. And it's a be- yes, we have. A, this is the height of the season now, just before Christmas. We have empty theaters on Broadway. Right. Lots. Right. We have two, two it's or three shrunk.
2: plays, two or three plays that are, that are happening. It, it has shrunk. I, I. I I don't know why, and I don't know what to do about it. You know, and it, it, it's, it's, and and, I, and again, my my every inclination is to want to stick my head in the sand and say, no, no, it's not happening. It it costs more to do a show, and yes, there are you know one third as many shows. If we're and probably less, I mean, and and but that it won't go away, and you just you just have to keep the faith and keep trying. I feel I, you know I sound so stupid just saying that, because if in fact the opportunities have you know uh, diminished, uh, uh, all the more reason for people to, you know, go out west and try their hand at television or... That's or, what scares me or, so much. Isn't there... No, it, it scares me too, and I, and, 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 and I don't want to admit it, and I want to, and I want to believe, well, things were going okay, and I've got something to work on, therefore, it must be okay for the entire community, which is really stupid, you know? Uh, I don't know what's to be done. I don't know what's to be done. Um, you know, I, I think... What's scary is that it felt like going into the theater... Was the natural next step for it? Was the natural first step for someone falling in love with performing, or directing, or writing? That it was, it was the theater that you dreamed of mm-hmm. involving yourself in, and that television and film was sort of something that sprang from that. You know, the, the the way the way it sort of still seems to be, and I may be naive about this in England. You know, it's all centralized in London. So many of the great stage players do films and television, but then in the evening they're doing something in the RSC or the National, you know. Uh, um, but but, but, but uh, it seems that that's changed and that I hear young people talking about, you know, the sitcom that they're going up for or the film that they're going up for. Media that have the capacity to inflate the appearance of talent, I think. Uh, it just, you know, uh, you, and someone who has not developed a craft of truly acting and being able to sustain a performance, and I'm focusing on actors, are being rewarded because they have, they've been blessed with something cosmetically appealing, and because in close-up, someone skillful with the right choice of music and the right choice of lighting and the direct instruction to not do anything can create the illusion that something tremendous is going on. <laughs> You know, now. I, I think, that, you know, again, I hate to sound, I don't want to put it down. I think there is an entire craft to that, you know, that, and, yes. and, 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 and an ability to tell a story in that. And, you know, it's, it's why you hear very often stage actors are overdoing it in their film auditions, you know, because they haven't developed the ability to, you know, leave room, enough room for the imagination of the viewer, which is, I think it's critical on stage as well, but it's, it's yeah. life and death in a close-up, you know. Um, from what I, from the little I know, and I think that's dangerous because, you know, you, you have a, I'm afraid that we'll have a generation of young people who are not being rewarded because they've developed the ability to sustain and make credible a performance on stage in person in front of someone else, you know, that they've been rewarded for something else, and then what happens is that they believe that they then are capable of acting, as I define it, and they come in to audition for me for something and it's it's almost embarrassing you know how how uncompelling the opposite of uh, these auditions are how lacking credibility how amateurish they sound and how the chances of them commanding anyone's interest for more than 30 seconds is so small you know and yet that person would define themselves as an actor and you know that you know, I I start to get upset about that, you know, because uh, they probably can validly describe themselves as a film actor or a television actor, but that's not the same as a stage actor, you know, and and uh, d- d- different criteria. And I'm, I I would it would be very discouraging to think that 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 craft is slowly disappearing, because it's not as you know it's not as uh, I don't know, you're not as rewarded as quickly or, you know, people don't want to work as hard. But, you know, I, I don't know. The, the little experience I've had being exposed to young people in schools, you know, uh, in different, different drama schools at Yale or Columbia and at Dartmouth, you know, th- there always seem to be some people whose passion is wanting to work on stage. And if somehow they can be encouraged, th- th- you know, and, and, and given a push, and, and, uh, and if somehow they can make ends meet, you know, uh, I mean, you know, I, I, the the distinct impression I have is that it was a lot easier for me to sustain myself on my unemployment checks back then than it, than it would be right now. You know, and that's 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 not right. You know? yeah. Anyway, anyway. Yeah, yeah.
1: I have um, uh, I came. I was reading a profile of yes. Steve Martin in yes. the New Yorker. Did you read that? No. A couple no. of weeks ago, no. and I came across something that that, um, um, tickled my head a little bit and I want to throw it out. It's a quote from Mike Nichols talking about Steve Martin uh, explaining why he he had never become a director. Steve Martin. and Nichols said, to be a director you have to be willing to be a prick. (laughs) (laughs) It means telling someone, sorry, you're not working out. We found someone else for the part. And I'm afraid the score is awful. Someone else is composing a new one. All those prick things you have to do if you want it to be right. And you have to do them to decent people most of the time. It's necessary for your artistic health. What
2: do you think? I agree. That's, it's, it's the hard... I, I think it's... Uh. It's the hardest part of... I think it's the hardest part of directing. I think auditions are. Well, you know, but there... Yes, because you can be fooled and, and the pressure's on to find the company and... and uh, because it's so unreal. Okay, okay. So, so, But even there, even there, you can try to structure it to make it as real as possible and it's never going to be real. But you can at least try and, you know, get to know someone, get rid of their nerves so that they can, you know, try to find out what you need to find out. But... But having to t- having to give the bad news, um, it, it, it's the worst. It's the worst, and, and uh, uh, um, there's there's no joy in it. Very often, it's to people that that, that you you like, but um, I don't, you know the the idea that it, it, the, the music that you want to hear, you're not hearing because someone is not capable of playing that music. There's really, there re, what, what choice do you have? I mean, really. Uh, 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 as, as directors, I would, I would ask that, you know. And it seems to me, unless you're prepared to, to, to live with the music, you know, that you're hearing, uh, which, is not, and which you know to be not acceptable, for whatever reason, you know, you have to make a change. And I, I'm forever looking, I'm forever turning around to see who will make the call, you know. May, maybe there's a, and you know, and I even hope it's a person that I don't like. Because if it's someone I don't like, I could even just I could justify having the general the producer make the call, and I've only done that once, you know. Uh, but, but but I I you know I to the extent you know to to the extent that you would define someone who has to do what they have to do to make the production as good as possible as being a prick, I would say y- yeah I agree I agree with that. There's no nice way to tell someone that it's not going to be them; it's going to be them. You know, it's not going to be. Uh, but but that's just a matter of, you know, if it were a painter, <laughs> you know, if you were a painter, uh, at the risk of being pretentious, you know, and you decided that that color wasn't right, you know, you could make the change, and no one's feeling, no one's life would change, no one's feelings would be sh- shattered, you know, you wouldn't, it would be, it would be a lot easier. But I don't think it's any different to the extent that you're trying to create this living painting, you know, and and the actors are, you know, the means by which you're doing it. Or the Or the composer, you know if it's a what whatever, so um, i didn't think that was in my nature at all, because happily the first one or two things that I directed it never came up, but then it did when it was became very clear all of a sudden something that an actor was doing was caught, was keeping the play from happening you know an actor would, and at first, I thought, well, this is something that this actor can Please, God, let this be something that this actor could fix through a note or a suggestion or, or making clear that I'm not pleased with this, that this is a problem now that we have to... And then to discover that even after trying that, it was, it was, it was made worse because the attempt to deal with... It, mm-hmm. it had to do with an actor who, who was uncontrollably cracking up whenever that actor was genuinely funny. They, they, when, whenever the actor was genuinely funny, he, the actor would crack up. And, 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 and at first I thought, well, and that's fine, you know, in certain... I mean, of course, in rehearsal, you're just to do something... That's the joy of rehearsal. Someone does something brave, and it's, 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 you know, or implements a note much better than you ever imagined, and it's hysterically funny, and you everyone cracks up, and then you get used to it, and you incorporate it. But this was something different, and, I'll ne- you know, I'll never forget having to do that. Oh, anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a part of... I mean... It's, it's the, it's, the it's rotten the part of it. I think so, yeah. It's, 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 it's
1: What advice do you have, Jerry, for um,
2: directors who are building careers? Uh, If I I had to say one thing, if I had to say one thing, because I thought about this, you know. um, I think one of the things that helped me make the transition from actor to director, in, in not a very planned way, is that I absolutely fell in love, you know, with the first couple of plays I directed. I... They were comedies, and I genuinely thought they were the funniest things that I had read to date. You know, and the and the, and the prospect of being locked in a room with these plays and the act was the most pleasant <laughs> possibility I could I could imagine just about. And so, I would say, when contemplating what to direct, you know, try not to settle for something that you, you sort of like that you have an intellectual reason for wanting to do, uh, as opposed to a strong personal reason. And that can be, you know, it can take any form. If it's a comedy and it makes you laugh out loud hysterically, that's a very good reason to want to direct. I think that's a very good... And and you think you understand the story, and you want to be all the characters (laughs) uh, at once, I think that's a very good reason to direct a comedy. Um, And I think the work is so hard... uh, And filled with so many traps along the way that unless you have that to sustain you, it's going to be a more difficult journey than it should be. No, I don't think so. Never had to do that. No, I don't think so. Great. I I don't think so. Uh, I'm trying, I'm I'm, I'm sort of, I I don't think so. I think uh, I've come close to directing a few that I've withdrawn from because I thought at the last moment. This is not going to be right. Now, who knows what that is? You know, that just might be fear yeah. of the unknown. I mean, I had, I didn't, uh, you know, I was not eager to direct anything else. I was not eager to direct guys and thoughts. I was afraid of screwing up tremendously. So I have to separate that sort of terror of messing up, which seem, tends to come with every new project, you know, getting it wrong, you know, uh, with, um, um, with the fact that there's something about the material that I'm forcing myself to, connect to, as opposed to really feeling passionately about it. I I have, I think with most of the things that I've directed, if not all of them, there has been something about it that I have been eager, very eager to do and explore. Uh, that wasn't always the case with my acting work, you know, mm-hmm. at all, uh, at all, you know. I, I don't think actors, you know, you don't fall in love with doing commercials. I think you fall in love with the residuals that, that you, you know, get from doing them, yeah. right? I think, you know. and, and, and the fact, um, uh, but but I, I I think I've yet to really commit to directing. So the closest I've come was when I was when I was asked to be a dialogue coach on a film once, and it was a it was it was a, ter- it was a terrible film. It was called Private School. It was a you know it was like a teenage sex exploitation movie. You know, but you know the money that they were willing to pay for the you know the stage the the comedy the stage comedy guy you know to come. <laughs> that's the words of the producer. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> to come God. and to work for eight weeks was, at that time, what? You know, it was a staggering, uh, you know, and, and, and it was, you know, it, it, the work was miserable. You know, <laughs> the, the work was just a bad joke. But I got to, you know, in the course of it, I, you know, I take away the fact that I met a couple of very talented actors and, you know, one producer, one young producer who, with whom I really enjoyed collaborating, you know, so even that, but that, that, that's, that's sort of one, you know. Uh, um, even the one or two television things that I've done recently, I've sort of approached the stage pieces, and happily I've had a writer-producer who wanted to do it that way. So that's been just sort of like putting on a one-act, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, a one-act that you, that you like. But, you know, but, um, you know I, think, I think I've generally been uh, very excited about the play that I've chosen to direct. You
1: know. Let's uh, take questions. Uh, can we bring the house lights up a little so we can <laughs> see each other? Right in the front?
2: Well, and how it's worked out for you? Um, I, I think casting directors are uh, c- critically important. You know, um, I think there's, I think there may be to some people a misconception about what their job is. I, I, they don't, they don't literally cast the play. I think that's the greatest misconception. You know, uh, I, uh, although <laughs> uh, it doesn't often sound that way. Sometimes you get the impression that do. At, at at their best and I've been very fortunate in that I've worked with several really really diligent casting directors they 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 are they, they, very helpful with casting ideas they they're very helpful when they're helpful in in, in sort of narrowing down exa- what exactly are we looking for and if we don't know exactly what we're looking for then how you know generally or what you know what they're critical in terms of the logistics of uh, the audition process, you know, bringing in the people that they think should be seen. You know, and you, you have to rely in large part on their knowledge and their taste and their intelligence, you know, and the fact that they understand. I mean, I don't think two directors define what it, what is a good actor in the same way. And I think, you know, it's very helpful to me, you know, you know, this casting director, this this director may think this actor is wonderful and this and I may think the actor is self-indulgent, narcissistic, and totally useless. You know, for the, and you, you hopefully want to align yourself with a casting director that understands or responds to, or is in sync with what your definition of a good actor is, you know. So um, uh, I'm, 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 I've become, the casting director at best for me becomes part of my sort of, inner circle of people that I after auditions I say, Well, I know I think I know how I think. What do you think? No, no, tell me, tell me what you think. You know, or to be safe enough to say, I really like this person. What do you think? You know, and to have that give and take. And to have the person who says, you know, I think you're gonna make you're making a mistake if you cast this person. You know, when you've sort of fallen in love with that person. And so now you have to go off and go, Well what is this about? you know, and how I think the best casting director is smart. On top of the acting pool, and wants to find out what is that, you know how you define a good actor, you know, and also and also one who feels secure enough to bring one in that they define as a good actor that you might not, in the hope that perhaps the person will come in and change your mind. This has happened to me, you know, and when that happens, you want to just sort of kiss the casting director, you know, because they've taught you something, you know, and and. Uh, so, so that, that's my general sense. I think they're critically important. And, and uh, uh, you know, the ones I've worked with, I've really enjoyed working with. Mm-hmm. Look, yes. Could you talk about working on Assassins from the point of view of working in such a small space, working with a genius? No. Also, did you feel like it was part of a big audition? The space... You know, I, I regret doing it in a small space now in retrospect. At the time, I was having a very good time and I thought we were making it work for the space. I think that the piece, that with the limited number of musicians, you couldn't ever musically achieve a kind of size that the biggest moments in the show wanted to achieve. And I think we were limited a little bit, not a little bit, but a lot by, by, the, by the logistics of how we chose to, to do it. Uh, <clears throat> working with a genius is great. It's daunting. Uh, it's tough to understand because he speaks probably faster than anyone I know, you know. Uh, but it's 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 endlessly st- it's 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 uh, it's endlessly stimulating because you feel like you're you know on this mission with someone who really knows their end of it uh, better than anyone else, you know. And and you don't know where you're going, but you know, you know, working with Stephen Sondheim is it's 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 He craves collaboration. He wants to know what you're thinking, even if you can't order your thoughts. He wants to know your impressions, and he then goes off in response to them. And he wants, he, 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 and did it feel like a, 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 yes, for a long, for a long time, it did feel like an audition. You know, that, that not wanting to let down someone that you perceive to be really good at what they do, it's tough to get away from that. And it's, it's, it's just, it's negative energy. You know, you're, you know, just time spent looking over your shoulder hoping you're not messing up. I hope, I, I, I'm i quite certain that I got past that at a certain point. Probably the first time I was able to tell him honestly that I was upset with something. That I didn't like something he was doing. You know? To be able to do that and to find out that everything was great. He loved hearing it. It's the You know, I, it, that was sort of a critical, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's easy when everything is going great, but you know, when someone does something that you don't like or don't appreciate, it's being able to communicate that and have it you know, make the relationship better that gets you past, among <coughs> other things, you know, there's nothing like solving a problem together to, to help you get past that feeling that it's an audition. But there's also you know, feeling that you're free enough to say what bothers you as well as what pleases you, you know, what you don't like as well as what you do like. And that happened That happened pretty easily. Up until the point that it did happen, it did feel like a bit of an audition, you know? I think you, you think so much as for the, the Broadway community. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Broadway community, you know, that's... What, what is... That, 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 it's, it, it, it's, what is that, you know? It, it, it's like, if it's fellow craftsmen who are working, that's one community. I, you know, I... I I generally like that community a lot, the people who are working to make it happen, make the theater happen somehow, you know? I like that community. The, the Broadway community who was coming to the early previews of Guys and Dolls, loving the fact that it was in big trouble, you know, <laughs> you know that's, that's, that's the Broadway community that, you know, I just, uh, I don't really care, to, and it exists. It's, it's you know, it's, because it's an exciting world and the work, when it's right, is exciting, you know? And everyone wants to be part of the work. You know, you can't give anyone greater joy, I think, than implementing someone's idea. You know, know, someone comes up with a suggestion in the course of rehearsal that is great. You know, and you go, whoa, that's really good. And it's very important for people to be involved. And so you're involved on the level you can be involved in. And some of it is actually practical. And some of it is gossip, you know. So when we were working on it, I I mean, this isn't. I just we had so much work to do that what the perception of the Broadway community was really not not too important. It became it became it became important when the question arose as to whether we were going to move the show or not, and it became clear that the Broadway community that was responsible for putting up the money to move the show didn't have sufficient faith that it would sell tickets you know, and that's when I sort of resented the Broadway community, was (laughs) at that moment, you know. Uh, But it didn't, it didn't in any way diminish the experience, you know, the experience. Yes, I'm sorry.
0: I'm just curious, Uh, you talked about Guys and Dolls earlier, about your self-professed naivete
2: toward the history of the writer. How do you then work with designers who often come with that history? Well, I tried to educate myself as much. Once I committed to doing the show, I certainly tried to educate myself as much as possible. I studied the original designs with Tony Walton. He showed me what was done and why it was done. Um, I had a pretty good idea of how w- what I wanted Tony to do based on, you know, having c- concluding that I wanted it in one full stage, in one full stage, and having seen some drawings that Tony did in a, a book of plays that he had done the illustrations for, and I thought, imagine a whole series of drops with that kind of flair. He's got this tremendous painterly flair, you know, and I, that would be great. That would really sort of automatically impose a design unity on it that, you know, would be spectacular, you know, in my mind's eye. And then he just went off and started doing sketches for, 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 for scrims and drops that were just, you know, breathtaking. But, um, so yeah, so I, tr- I try to, you know, give myself as much knowledge as I possibly can when I go into the conferences with the designers. Similarly, before I met with Cy Fuhrer, who had produced the original, I, I read, you know, I read as much of, as, as much as I could about the original. I read the original script which was different in certain ways than the, you know, than the French version. There were, things were cut, things were changed. You know, and I tried to really educate myself as much as I possibly could in preparation. Right. Say you <coughs> just full of love a tasteless piece of shtick and gets yeah. a big laugh. Yeah. How do you generally deal with that and you're really in love with something that's happened after, as you say, yeah. you've been away for a little while? It's, it's, it's a great question. It, it really depends so much on how I have felt about the shtick. The problem is, if I've loved the shtick, you know, then I accept it and I just don't question it for a long time. This happened in Laughter on the 23rd Floor, I must tell you. And it, it was the, one of the few things that made me happy. We had as many previews as we did because it wasn't until late into previews, just before the critics came, that I made this change. Now, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, Max Prince, the role that Nathan Lane plays, entered uh, after this enormous build-up. Everyone that came in talked about Max, Max this, Max that. And in comes M- Max Prince. And he does not come in doing anything funny right away, the way the others are sort of designed to express... Get, you know, they get laughs right away get, when things are working well. There's an element of mystery. Who is this guy? You know, what what is going on? What's going on? Who, who is this, The, the, the you know, the, the center of the show? And in the beginning, we had a sequence where the character would come in and immediately go, whoa, 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 And then he would do variations displaying what a headache he had, what a hangover he had. And then he finds out that the network is called. And what proceeded after that was about a minute, 45 seconds of nonverbal shtick, in the best sense of the word, business, that involved the character of Max Prince muttering to himself, carrying on this this, this monologue, this interior monologue that was leaking, <laughs> while the others just sat and watched him. And it would be about how much he detested the network, and he would go, and all the time he'd be taking his putting his coat on, taking a handkerchief out, spreading a handkerchief to sit down, which was something that Sid had done, and which Neil was fond, The idea, he was fond of the idea of Nathan doing it as well. And in the middle of spreading it, he would strangle it as though it were just a neck. And then he would sit, and and he would make funny sounds. And he would sit down and take out a cigar. And he would would sit down, clearly still agitated. This is 45 seconds now. And he would light the cigar. And he'd start to suck on the cigar. And as he would suck on the cigar, he would clearly make infantile sounds. Right? Hmm, 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 mm. And then, after doing the infantile sounds and the cigars puffing and smoking, he would shift keys. And he would go, hmm, hmm. And it would have a different sound. And finally, he would finish lighting the cigar and click the lighter off and go back to the dialogue, which was, oh, yeah, okay. They want to... <coughs> uh, 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 oh, yeah, all right. Uh, uh, they started, we'll finish. Bingo, bingo, bingo. That was that was, the, that was the only bit of dialogue. And then someone else would say, who started it? I just said it. Bingo, bango, bingo, bingo. What, what am I? You know, and he, he would... Ex- and I, because Nathan Lane, because the actor, did it in a way that I loved watching, I sat there and enjoyed the hell out of it for weeks. And all of a sudden, there was a performance, all of a sudden, you know, so I say all of a sudden, but it was the product of several people saying things that I, you know, no one is, very few people are going to come out and say, this is bad here. <laughs> You're hurting, this, you are telling... You are not doing the story any good by allowing this character to display this kind of behavior this early in the play. No one is going to say that. And if they did, you know, who knows how I would react to it. But all of a sudden I began to think, you know, there might be something very wrong with what I'm allowing him to do here. And there was, for obvious reasons. He was basically displaying for the audience what a lunatic he was before the audience had gotten to know him at all. And it just looked tremendously self-indulgent. That at best, it would be enjoyed, that bit of business would be enjoyed by two people, fellow craftsmen who appreciated the audacity of that, perhaps, and people who knew Nathan, right? Knew of him and and liked him. That left out an awful lot of people, (laughs) you know? And, And all of a sudden, it hit me, because it was consistent, too, with something else that would happen. If Nathan were to get too angry too soon it would, the tone would change. The tone of the piece would change in an unacceptable way. And somehow, these two, and in and, and one performance, late in previews, these two things came together. Nathan was a little too angry uh, uh, um, in the course of it, just a little too hostile. You know, and it was, you didn't believe that he really loved these guys. You, you know, he just, you just believed he was angry. He was angry at the network, he was angry at everybody. A perfectly acceptable thing to have happen in the course of the process. But that, in conjunction with this extended bit of business, made me re- think, oh, my God, this is wrong. Now, how do you tell an actor who has been doing this now for three weeks or four weeks, happily, you know, it's become an integral part of their... This is the hard part. And this is the moment of truth. I mean, it really is the moment of truth. And, I mean, <laughs> I have a, found, there's a... There's a reservoir of trust between Nathan and myself because of the experience that we had together on Guys and Dolls. But this was unique. And it was, you know, it was basically saying... Don't do this anymore. First I said, we've got to cut it down. We've got to cut it down. You know, when I began to sense that it was wrong, I, I knew that something was... I didn't realize that it was all wrong. Well, to make a long story short, I expressed this as, in as articulate, in as private a way as possible to Nathan, so that no one else heard this. And I tried to make him understand that the effect of his character would be enhanced by this rather than diminished. And he, the, 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 the actor is either going to trust you or not. And so, what we ended up doing—this was now—I made this realization Monday night. Critics started coming Thursday. Now, so Tuesday, Tuesday night, I asked him to do it without. And sure enough, he, we, and Neil, Neil, having understood that you know that this was right, changed a little bit of the dialogue. He, he he cut out some of the stuff that begged the character to display how eccentric he was, and gave him something a little more coherent in the beginning, and. It was. It made a dramatic, a dramatic difference to how easily the audience got to know and like him. You know, a wedge had been taken out—a wedge that had existed between him and the audience. I took out. That—that was a tough one. That was a tough one. Um, it's easier if you know the shtick is bad right away. You know, and is only—and only feels good to the actor, but is you know splits the focus or tells the wrong story, or changes the tone of the story you want to tell, then it's easier to deal with, and you only have to hope that the actor is willing to meet you halfway. You know, um, you, you know that, that's just a lot, a lot easier. Once I was, in, in, in Lend Me a Tenor, when I was staging Lend Me the Tenor, you know, simultaneous action in two rooms, at one point, at one point, the action finished stage left, and picked up stage right, and the character stage left was required only to read a magazine while the action stage, right? And this is where you can't cut to close up. You, you have to have actors who appreciate how delicate focus is and how religiously they must control it, you know? And so, one rehearsal, the lights went down, stage left, and uh, uh, I started to watch the scene stage right, and I looked over, and there was the actor reading the magazine, peeling a banana. <laughs> there was fruit on the set, you peel a banana. You know, so, I joked, I joked, I, at first I joked about the banana, you know, I made it, and hoped that that would somehow translate, but it never does. You know, the idea that anyone is going to read your mind, it just never happens, really. But I made a joke about the banana, and this time and we did it again, and, 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 and sure enough, the lights changed, and there was the banana again. So we stopped, and I took a break. I went up on the set, and I took the banana off the set, just took it off the set, without saying anything, again, in, in good humor. The scene began again, and I looked over stage left, and now the actor had a different piece of fruit. <laughs> So we have to have a little meeting about, you know, about the focus. It's, that's easy, though. You know, and again, you just, you have to be, I think the key is being able to explain why it's not a good idea. That's all, you know. Uh, it happened in Guys and Dolls. I'm running on, but it was critical in Guys and Dolls. And it, and it goes right to the heart of something that was um, problematic in Guys and Dolls. I cast Walter Bobby as Nicely, Nicely Johnson. And by doing that, I went with a guy who turned me on the most in auditions, Period. He just lit up the room when he did, when he came in. And Walter Bobby was not fat. Stubby K was really fat. Uh, and so there was a big, how you know, how important or not was that to the show? And at first I thought, well, it's not important. The key is the best actor, you know, the things, <laughs> things that make sense and that you've learned. You know, go with the person who brings the most life on the stage and everything else will follow, you know. But there was one scene that was not working. There was a little scene where Nicely comes on carrying a bag of groceries. You know, and, uh, and, and he's supposed to be somewhere else waiting for Sky to show up. And Nathan Detroit sees him. He goes, what the hell are you doing? He says, I, I was hungry. I stopped off from groceries. And then Nathan basically then tells him to get out of here and get back to the room. And Nathan continues on with the scene. And it seemed like a stage wait. It wasn't working. Walter, bless him, Walter Bobby, would come out with a different prop in the bag of groceries every preview, you know, once he had linked sausages, uh, uh, um, once he had, oh, I don't know, an ice cream cone, an apple. And one night, I saw him backstage, and he said, I got it. And I said, what? And he took out a carrot this big. (laughs) It's (laughs) It's all about phallic symbols. A carrot this big. And he went, huh, what do you think? And I went, (laughs) no, 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 no. (laughs) And and he thought I was kidding. And sure enough, the scene happened that night, and he came out with this carrot chewing this carrot. And I didn't know what had happened. I, clearly, I had not expressed myself clearly. You know, He thought that I had given him tacit permission to do it. I was so pissed off at how badly the scene was going and the fact that, to my mind, he had done something I didn't want him to do that I said, well, I'm just, just going to cut the scene. you know, Which up to that point had been very difficult to do because the book is so brilliantly constructed. And then I thought, wait a minute, And I rushed back to the script, and I read it very slowly and very carefully, and that scene, that little moment with Nicely, has absolutely nothing to do with stuff, with the plot. There isn't anything in that scene that you don't find out in either the scene just preceding or the scene just following. Nothing. And it was all of a sudden I realized that that scene had been left in only to capitalize on Stubby K's weight. It was clearly a joke about his eating, which... Made no sense with Walter, who was athletic and not at all overweight, and we didn't go to any pains to make him appear to be. We didn't give him a fat suit. I was so excited about that cut. I can't tell you because I, I just knew that it would create the impression of the action. Continu- you know, there's nothing like taking something out that feels like it's asking for a laugh that isn't getting a laugh, and that was tricky because, poor, you know, the act. Bless him, he felt as directors do, that, no, 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 just give me enough time, and I'll make it work. No, no, it's not the text, it's not the script, it's the way I've staged it, it's the way I'm, it's the way i help the actors I can fix it, honest, I can, you know. That was one of the great things about having Neil in rehearsal, is that he could demonstrate how, you know, how, how it was so often an improvement in the text that was required, no matter what you did as a director, or you as an actor. But having Walter accept that was tricky, as well. But the fir- the first night we tried it, it, You could just, there was, you know, the absence of it created such a, it was a relief, you know, it was was one of those, one of those, when you know you've done something right, you know, that you, you know, you've gotten it, you've gotten to it in time, you know, that was thrilling. So I think, to answer your original question, I've gone off on a tangent, it's just to really keep asking yourself whether it's right, whether the bit, whether the shtick serves the piece or whether or not it's, you know, just something you like, you know. And perhaps something that you don't have the nerve to perhaps bring consider that it's 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 not right that it's wrong. Yeah.
1: And you have problems not with actors but with playwrights. Where you think that the change should be made, and how delicately or how indelicately yeah. you find yourself having to approach them and say, you know, I don't think this is working.
2: I, I tend to be delicate. I tend to be, you know, I think that's the actor in the, you know, I, I believe that what playwrights do is so <laughs> extraordinary, you know, <laughs> making something from nothing that I tend to err on the side of being real fastidious about actors keeping to the text and blah, blah, blah. And I tend to approach uh, playwrights a bit deferentially, you know, a little less now, but certainly delicately and, and certainly not in front of it, you know, very privately. And I try to have planned, I think one of the keys is timing. I think when you bring up your objection is critical, you know, depending on the person you're working with, you know. Uh, I found with Neil, even though I suspected something should not be in the play, I found that if I waited for the right moment to bring it up, it would protect the possibility of having a change implemented in that he was more positioned to hear it himself. Um, it got easier and easier as we began to trust each other more, you know, to the point where he eventually said, if you don't think it's working, take it out. You know, which was sort of terrifying. You know, uh, and and didn't, isn't exactly what he meant because in the entire process we really only had a disagreement about one line. You know, uh, that I I felt so should. Oh sure no no I, I, you know I, I, I think so. Um um uh it was towards the end of the play when um, uh Ira uh, comes in and talks about raising money for um a bum that he's just run into on the street, you know? And, and at one point, one character says, um, Ira says, down there but for the grace of God go I. And one of the other characters says, well, then by the grace of God, why don't you go down there and send the bum up here? You know, and it's gets a big laugh. And it seemed to me that was the moment when the next character should have entered, you know, uh, to continue to, to, to the story. And instead, one of the writers, Carol, says, no, no, I'm going to chip in with Ira. And, and someone says, why? You don't even know Belleville, the bum. And she says, "I know, but every once in a while, Ira makes me cry. Go figure, you know." And I, it just it, I, you know. Now I don't. Now I don't. I don't think. Now it's sort of gotten to the point where I don't mind hearing it, you know. But at all, it just it seems okay and it seems fine. And I know that I have an inclination sometimes to want to, you know. I, I tend to lobby to get rid of stuff that expresses how a character feels, you know. Uh, in words, rather than seeing it happen, or, or I'm not being very clear about this, but I I wasn't sure that it was earned, or 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 or, and so you know uh, um, I expressed that, but he felt it was, and in a situation like that, it's going to stay in, you know, it's, I mean, you know, I mean, it, it just is, it just is, the, the fact is, and this is this is the important part that in the course of uh, I don't know um, over a year of work, and certainly two to three intense months of Rehearsals in New York and and and, and previews and, and that was you know we we had thousands of decisions to make like that and that was literally the literally the only one where you know we had we had a difference of opinion there was there was one other one that I there was another moment where I, a line should I felt the line should have been taken out um, but we needed it because a costume it, we needed it to cover a costume change and we never got around to Changing it, you know, but there we agreed, and it was wonderful because I expressed my concern about it early on in the process. Neil said, "Well, he wasn't sure," and then about three weeks later, I, he, he kneeled over and he said, "You know, I don't know if we, I don't know if we need that line." You know, that it was the same one, and so the journey that we took sometimes was not direct and linear. You know, it would, it would, we would each need time to sort of, we would each need time to digest what the other was saying, you know, and then sort of come up with with an opinion away from the heat of the moment, you know? Uh, um, yeah.
0: um, how much reblocking did you have to do in the course of preparing the play? Because, and this is my opinion, the stage always looked balanced. You never saw characters bunched up in right. the corner. You, you'd see these marvelous tableaus. Now, of course, maybe it was the help of the lighting and the costumes and all that but it it never looked static and it never looked unbalanced. How did you do it?
2: <laughs> you know, I appreciate that so much because it's, I, I, quite frankly, it's one of the things that I take most pride in is that is that the audience is all looking where they should be looking at the same time, hopefully, and if you were to take a picture of it at any moment, it would have a kind of symmetry that made sense. And I think that's, that's by starting day one, and, 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 and <laughs> starting, and, and, trying, and trying to always be open to making it better and not falling in love too soon with an idea because the chances are it might not be telling the story that the play is trying to tell at that moment as well as something else you might come up with down the line. Now that's not always true. You, you know, sometimes a bit of blocking you come up with right away is, is right. It's it. You know, that that's, it's, that. But that's, I think that's the exception to the rule. And so I just continue to with, you know, the different groups. And I find that m- my most exciting homework, once we've gotten into rehearsals, is going off with the mental picture of what we've just done that day and examining what is it, what is it about it that's either self-conscious, uh, unbalanced, if you will, you know, uh, awkward, clumsy, you know, not graceful. And and why, you know why, and the notebooks are full of casualties, you know, blocking casualties, staging casualties, that never saw but light of day because, oh, they just they just they just didn't seem natural or graceful or, you know, or choreographed. I I like the choreographed feel, you know, I I like it to feel like you were having a good dream, you know, I've, I've said that before, but you know, it's like wow, this, everyone seemed, you know. And it's just about. It's, for me, it's about doing, you know, continuing to refine the choreography as much as possible.
1: Why did you choose such a shallow ground plan?
2: You know, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it, I think I'm trying. To, I'm trying to recall now. I'm trying to. Recall. I know we had a wide space, and I know it in the wide space that, and, and I know we wanted a, a, a ceiling, you know, a sense of a, a roof on the room. And once you do that, you limit, among other things, the lighting that you can do upstage. I felt that the audience, that, that the action needed to be as downstage as possible to create an in-one feeling without it looking like we were trying to be in one.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, also, there was something about, and this is Tony, this is Tony Walton's brilliance, uh, about that, that set in that theater that preserves the look of it even when you're underneath the balcony overhang. It's sort of the, he calls it the male slot look, you know, which also causes the actors to look bigger. They become sort of larger than life without, you know, without (laughs) putting them in lifts, you know. It's just there's something about, and I think that has to do. Also, we needed the space to create the illusion of an outside world, you know, to the extent that Tony and I have always sort of approached plays that take place in a room with the question of, yeah, but what's the outside world like? Uh, House of Blue Leaves, you know, takes place in, in the room in Queens, the two rooms in Queens, but Manhattan's out there, you know, the front page. It takes place in this borough that the, that the reporters love, this hovel, you know, it's their home away from home, and outside the impersonal world of the Chicago Courts building, I think, I mean, whatever that thing is, you know, the, uh, the, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and here, we were limited. It was a one set, you know, one, one large room, but it was sort of important to create the illusion of outside, and we needed a certain amount of room. To do that. 57th Street, the plaza in the distance, you know, uh, you know Manhattan outside the room. To d- we had to dump stuff out the window, you know. So it was a combination, I think, of all those things.
1: That's, That's interesting. Fun. What about Six
2: Degrees? Hi. Hi. What about... Six Degrees, y- y- you know, one of the most, I'm going to be <laughs> at the risk of hyperbole, one of the most special days in my life, I because I can vividly remember this, is when I realized that the scheme to present Six Degrees with just the two sofas and the Kandinsky and the actors in the front row would work for the entire play. You know, it would, it would work page one, two, three, oh Oh my God, this is good. Yes, I can see this. I can see this transition right through to the end of the play. I, you know, it's one of those, it was sort of like, well, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just one of those happy days. And, 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 it was it took because it was sort of an arduous process getting to that point. John had written the play very cinematically, you know, uh, uh, that is to say, quick scenes, quick cuts. One minute you're in the living room with Paul and Wies and Flan. The next minute you're in the kitchen. You're in the bedroom. You're in the dining room. No, let's not go in the dining room. Let's come back to the kitchen. The next, and it was sort of startling. And if you stick to the first twenty-five pages, there's no reason to not present the piece in um, a pla- a place with walls. There's no reason not to. But Tony was great about con- insisting that once you got into the piece, it broke down in a way that would cause the walls to become uh, an obstruction rather than a friend, an ally. And, and I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and there was something about the pulse of the way John told the story. I always felt from day one that it was as though 17 people rushed into a room and all turned to the audience and said, have we got something to tell you? you know, Who wants to go first? Flan, you, you want And everyone had their story that they desperately had to tell. And the way it was written, there was an unmistakable rhythm to the way these people, to the beginnings and ends of those beats. And I just felt that conventional entrances and exits wouldn't work. So at first I thought about having the cast uh, sit, sit in bleachers upstage of the walls, let those walls be scrims, but that didn't solve anything because they had to get up, come around the scrims, you know, and so we investigated that. And finally, the idea of having them in the front row so that they could stand up immediately and establish themselves and disappear by sitting down. The fact that the audience would accept, we could make two sofas be Central Park, why not? You know, if we said it was Central Park, you know, I mean, I never realized how much an audience would embrace if you, you know, entrusted them to imagine it. If you told them, this is where we are, they would go, okay, great, I got it. And that's what ended up happening. And uh, um, It it was because the play was written in such a way that it wouldn't support a conventional, you know, walled set, because it it went to so many different places. And finally, the only way it seemed to do it would be in a place that would serve all those places. You know? And, and, uh, 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 There was a moment, as I say, when, you know, and those ideas are great. Your your fear is that you come to something on page 31 that renders the whole scheme, you know, useless and indulgent and detrimental to the life of the play. But that's what I mean. I I actually went, you know, went through it moment by moment. Now, this could work. And I sort of had a sketch. And Tony's notion that we have an above was critical just to break up the space, you know. Uh, um, We had two windows above. And, you know, just... It was, I don't know, it was a very happy collaboration, his and mine. Um, we were both very excited about it. I must tell you, when we presented the idea to some of the powers that would that be, um, we got a negative response. And it's daunting. It's really daunting, you know? And, and it was one of those times where, because I don't fancy myself particularly brave about anything, you know? But I will do what I need to do to, to you know, to get it done. I, I will. You know, it's the aspect of being a you know whatever Mike said, uh, uh, and 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 here it wasn't so much. It wasn't so much about being a, you know a bastard. It was about no, I think this is going to work because somebody called it very sixties. Well, I, yeah, it's nice, but it's sort of sixties, don't you think? You know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> it, it's, that that's a bit, you know it tends to pull you know deflate you a bit. But no, I just it was that was one of those cases where I just felt we had come upon. Because you know, to me, it's about finding the vessel to present the piece, the finding the solution that's going to serve the story. And I think, you know, that one happily seemed to work out. Oh yeah, that you was know, you know? brilliant. It, was, it brilliant. felt right. I think we can take one more. <laughs> it's great that you all came out here. I'm telling you, it's the holiday season. You should be shopping or something. <laughs> <laughs> I know that for the most part, the work you've done for the last ten years or so has been in Broadway, Lincoln Center, and early. I had said using it for the to the comedies, the yeah. musicals. Yeah. Is there part of you that you're going to do something either
1: more absurdist or more dramatic?
2: You, you know, it, it, it's not a conscious thing. It, 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 uh, 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 if I read the script that, again, makes me nuts, causes me to fall in love with it, makes me feel I'm in the presence of a special voice, you know, the first things that I, that I ever directed really were Chris Durang's, uh, Chris Durang's plays, which, you know, I wouldn't call absurdist necessarily, but they were very extreme comedies, you know, in a very specific point of view and but they made great sense to me you know and i think that's probably one of the reasons we got along so well is you know i, I sort of i just sort of insisted on wanting to believe the actors <laughs> and he took care of the madness and somehow i the madness was always gra- because the madness was always grounded in some sort of recognizable reality um, we had a match i thought we had a, ver- a match made in heaven in fact you know and i loved working with him on those but those none of those were so called mainstream productions you know they were all done off broadway and off off broadway and I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't really know how to make the distinction, except that I do know there are some adventurous pieces which might not unhappily find an audience, you know, on Broadway because oh, I don't know, too they're risque, they're too daring, they're you know, they're too controversial. You know, if if I read one that I like, you know, I'd like to be able to do it. You, know? you have any interest in doing classics? I think about it, you know, and I think That's about a step. The, well, you know, and then I pick up and then I pick up something like the Seagull or the Cherry Orchard, and I go. Uh, you know, and I just tend to get spilkers. you know, I get a little impatient and I go, it must be a bad translation, it must be a bad translation, and, you know, and I'm waiting for waiting that time when I, when I read one and I go, wow, this is abs- this makes great sense and I can't wait to get started on it. Well, thank you, so much. Thank
0: thank you. very much. Thank you. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theater Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at AmericanTheaterWing.org.